Hi, I'm Brian Vines, filling in for Ashley Ford, and this is 112BK. Coming up, small businesses in the city are dying. That's what a council member lamented in 1986 when trying to save them with a bill. That bill got new life on Tuesday at the first meeting of the Council on Small Business. At the hearing yesterday, there were people from the East Village who said that just walking around the neighborhood and counting storefronts, there were 23% vacancy, 31% on 14th Street, east of 3rd Avenue. And then Kings County is one of the most undercounted in the country when it comes to the census. We'll hear from Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams why that's a problem and what he's doing about it. Someone shows up at your door and start asking you questions, the first thing you think about is immigration, particularly in this climate. Hi, welcome to the show. Just ahead, I'll be talking with Borough President Eric Adams about census counts, community boards, Corner Store Caroline, the city charter, and climate change. But first, small businesses in the city are disappearing, being replaced by chain drug stores and Chase Banks. For more than 30 years, the city council has considered how to stop the die-off, but legislation never advanced, perhaps until now. The Committee on Small Business had its first meeting on Tuesday, and according to our next guest, joining us by phone, that alone was progress. Stephen Wishnia reports on labor and housing issues, and he tells us was the last person ever to have an article published in the late Lamented Village Voice. His recent piece for Gothamist is titled, What Can NYC Do to Stop Small Businesses from Dying Out? Stephen, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. So the big question is, what can New York City do to stop small businesses from dying out? But before that, 30 years, really? Uh, Actually, 32. The bill was first, or a version of the bill was first introduced by Ruth Messenger, the former borough president of Manhattan, uh, when she was a city council member in 1986. And she said yesterday she's remembered for that, you know, more than she is for anything that she was successful at during her political career. She's remembered for that, but she's yet to take a victory lap or even get a proper vote on the thing. Uh, Right. Uh, First, to clarify, this is a bill. It's not a commercial rent control bill Mm -hmm. uh, because that would require a law from the state law that permitted the city to enact it. Uh, It's actually a bill to guarantee arbitration for small businesses. Uh, When their lease runs out at least six months in advance, the landlord would have to notify them either that he intends to renew their lease or give a legally valid reason why their lease is not being renewed. And then all commercial tenants would have the right to renew their leases for 10 years mm-hmm. and if they thought the rent increase was too much, could go to arbitration. Let's talk about the landscape now and what the problem is. I have some numbers here from the Douglas Elliman brokerage. They did a study a little while ago in 2016 when they saw that in Manhattan, vacancies were at 7% and there's a 20% storefront vacancy right now. Yeah, that may be 
you know, a little high. They apparently have not released that study to the public. Right. But at the hearing yesterday, there were people from the East Village who said that just walking around the neighborhood and counting storefronts, there were 23% vacancy on 3rd Avenue or Avenue C, yeah. uh, 31% on 14th Street east of 3rd Avenue. Yeah. So looking at this legislation right now, we have seen the reports that both the mayor and the real estate lobby are against it. So if Mayor de Blasio and the real estate lobby are against this bill, does it have any hope of passing? I think there is a lot of political pressure for something to be done because people are seeing, you know, the bodega disappears or the prices go up. People are saying, you know, it costs a dollar for a banana yeah. in town Manhattan or $2 for a cup of coffee. And that's because of the rent. That's not because the you know stores are gouging you. Right. People are seeing dry cleaners and shoe repair stores disappearing in the neighborhoods they live in. Speaker Corey Johnson was talking about on West 14th Street, there's a supermarket that closed two years ago and has not been replaced. It's you know it's By anything. vacant. Yeah. Council member Andrew Cohen, who's from the Northwest Bronx, was saying in his district, which is way up like the end of the D train and the end of the one train mm-hmm. in the Bronx, there's vacant storefronts on every commercial strip. So I think there is a lot of pressure to do this. The question is how much would the bill be watered down in the process to mollify opponents or as a compromise? We will be happy to read your piece in Gothamist. Stephen Wishnia, thank you for joining us on 112BK today. Okay, and thank you very much for having me on. On Tuesday, Borough President Eric Adams convened for the first time the Brooklyn Complete Count Committee, dedicated to making sure that Brooklyn receives a more accurate count during the 2020 census. The census has been in the news a lot more than usual these days after the Trump administration inserted a citizenship question because it says it wants to protect voter rights. Okay, if you believe that, call me. I'm talking and taking offers on the Brooklyn Bridge. But according to most social scientists, introducing a question about citizenship has a chilling effect on participation. But beyond that, Brooklyn is one of the most undercounted counties in all the country. Much of that has to do with awareness and access. There are 47 languages spoken here, 38% of residents are foreign-born, and 40% don't have access to computers in their own home. To talk about overcoming these challenges and about many other things under the sun, we welcome back to 112BK, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Thanks for joining us at the Thank table you. again. Thank you. Always good seeing you. Great topics. You're doing an amazing job. Well, we're trying. You keep giving us reasons to keep <laughs> spinning. I was out this morning for the committee meeting, and there were a lot of folks from all corners of Brooklyn who really were there for one mission to make sure that Brooklyn counts. Yes, yes, yes. And I tried to catch you before you left because people don't have a shot of it, but you had on some mean shoes, man. Oh, brother. <laughs> Under the table. 
<laughs> but all above board is the fact that we have to get folks to really pay attention to this census in 2020. No, without a doubt. And the goal is to not allow the national energy erode the numbers. Yeah. I used the analogy this morning of talking about uh, the sea of people and all the people who are part of the sea and every sea and every ocean is fed by rivers and what the national government is doing they're trying to build dams on those rivers all of these dams slow down the flow and it won't give us an exact count right. and our goal to this morning is to bring together all of the various organizations and say we're going to dismantle those dams so that the flow would be a seamless one and a allow individuals to be counted in this sea of people in this country. So why is that so important as we sit here in 2018, the closing days, looking forward to 2020? Because it, it dictates how many people you have in your state and in your city, and it determines the amount of resources that you receive. So when people start talking about our roadways, our transportation dollars, our educational dollars, all, all of these things that we believe are important, right. sometimes we tend to believe, well, you know, the census count is not going to impact me. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Yeah. And if you're not making yourself counted for, then don't complain about the transit system. Don't complain about the lack of educational resources. Don't complain about your roadways as we try to continue to develop. And so many other things that determine the number of people in a particular area. It's all about being counted. And that federal money coming back to we're sending it there and we need to get it back. That's right. Your dollars, federal dollars going to Washington, D.C., they, they must find their way back to the city and the state. And the only way that is done is by being properly counted by the number of people who live in the area. And that is important. So let's get out right now what historically has been our problem. Brooklyn is a hard-to-count place. So what has been barring us from getting an accurate count that we've got to fix before 2020? Well, it is not lost on us that 47% of Brooklynites speak a language other than English at home. Right. Almost 38% of uh, our residents are foreign-born. Those numbers in itself states that many people come from countries and other areas on the globe where this thing of a census doesn't exist. Someone shows up at your door and start asking you questions, the right. first thing you think about is immigration, yeah. particularly in this climate, but it was always present. People, right. it was always in the mind of those who are undocumented that, hey, is this someone that is attempting to deport me? And right. it's, it's a very real feeling, it's a very real emotion. So now there's a complete shift in how the data is collected, where no more the paper form, the overwhelming number of the forms that are going to be done or communication is going to be done via computers. So we must, number one, make sure that those local stakeholders, they are supplied with computers to get it done. Right. Number two, we must make sure that we have people that can communicate in the language of indiv individuals where they are comfortable. Right. So if it's Urdu mm -hmm. in my Pakistani community, Pakistan community, if it's a Creole in my heavy Creole French-speaking Haitian mm -hmm. community or Russian-speaking community. So you don't want someone that is attempting to get this information from a resident if they, if the people who they are attempting to get it from 
don't identify with them, and we need to use that. And I don't think we did a good job in the past of doing that. So you talked about how the Trump administration may be building these barriers and damming up communities that are vital to Brooklyn. So tell us about who's on your squad. <laughs> Who are these influencers that are going to break down those barriers and make sure that folks are counted regardless of their immigration status, where they work, how they live, who they live with? Who's on your team? Well, we, have, we have a co-chairs of the um, Make Brooklyn Count. Mm -hmm. One is the Brooklyn Community Foundation. We're very excited about some of the things that they're doing on the ground. Uh, Pastor Gilfim Rose from my office, who's well-connected. He was with the 67 Precinct Council, mm -hmm. and we have been doing so much with our different clergy institutions. And part of what we're doing, we're looking at bridges that we built throughout mm -hmm. the last couple of years, and now we're utilizing them. We have the Brooklyn uh, Library System. For many years, Linda Johnson there, she has been doing an amazing job of really opening the branches to make people feel comfortable. Now that the doors are open, people are used to utilizing the space. She's saying, hey, now while you're here getting that book, using that computer, yeah. now it's time to register and be counted as a citizen, someone that's participating in the count. You have Mega Evans College, CUNY, many of our CUNY citizens and non-citizens are foreign-born. Right. And so the young people in CUNY, people are comfortable with going to CUNY and going, going to school. While you're there, let's do the census data. So we are meeting people where they are. That's, mm -hmm. that's the beauty of this push, that we're meeting people where they are, we're speaking the languages that people understand and telling them why this is important. And that is paramount to a successful census count. So that's paramount, showing up, doing your job as a citizen, meeting people where they live. But I know that you are one who encouraged people to be well-developed citizens all year, no matter whether we're being counted or not. To that end, I wanted to talk to you about community boards. When you first walked into the office, one of your first initiatives was to get young people on board and bring energy and vitality to our community boards. And now there's a plan afoot to uh, have term limits on community boards. So we wanted to get your opinion on that. This, this is a very inside baseball conversation. Mm -hmm. People often say that, listen, why do we need term limits? You know, you can easily remove a person on, take a person off. It is far more intricate than that. What's the importance of community boards and why do you want young people to even be aware of them those years ago when you stepped in and said, hey, 16, you can do it? First level of participation in government, it allows you to start the process of understanding the anatomy of the governmental system. Yeah. It allows you to sit on committees that will make impacts and make decisions in an advisory capacity, indicate what you want in your community. You have an education community, a, a committee, public safety committee, health committee, all of these various committees, right. even if you're not a community board member, you can be on the committee and right. you start to make decisions on what is going to happen in your community. So it's imperative that not only young people, seniors, and many people who have tried to get on the community board for years, yeah. their applications are put in, yet they don't have any 
opportunity to, to do so. Some people have served for 20, 30 years yeah. on a community board. You and I both know, mm-hmm. new fresh idea. There's a reason you turn over the soil to allow new fresh ideas to grow. And it is sometimes challenging and it becomes a personality mm-hmm. when you tell a long-term resident that, hey, it's time to move you off. My community board. Exactly. My community (laughs) board. So there are four other borough presidents who are going the other way. What do you know that they don't that you would say, hey, maybe we should pump the brakes on this? Different philosophies. Mm -hmm. And the four other borough presidents, we all get along very well. We we like each other. We do things together. We just have a different philosophical belief. I am a believer in term limits. In the city council, I fought against when the previous mayor attempted to overturn term limits. I believe we should do it on the state level. I believe we should do it on a federal level. There's no reason uh, to have people serve for the number of years that they serve. Some people say, well, you lose uh, institutional uh, memory by doing so. That is untrue. There's so many staff members and internal. Still come. It does. And and it, and the city council, we've had term limits for a number of years now. The sky did not fall. The city is still running. Yeah. And you're coming up with some great new ideas because of that. Okay. Can we pivot for a second talking about that institutional memory and the loss of things? We know that you were in law enforcement high levels before transitioning into the job of borough president. And there was recent Recently, an incident here in Brooklyn, the, uh, help me out, she's Corner Store Caroline. Right, kind of thing. <laughs> right. They, they've given us so many names. This is, the, this is the woman who called the police on a nine-year-old boy yeah. after accusing him of touching her be- behind. When you looked at the video, there were, there were a number of things that jumped off at me. Right. Number one, she turned around. And she saw the young boy walk past. And clearly, if you would have looked at it, it was clearly the actions of a person who was not focusing on doing something to her. Then she did not call the police right away. She called the police out of anger after the mother responded to her actions and she took the phone out of her her, her booth. I think that if she accused uh, or stated that she was a police officer, there may be criminal charges involved. And so the DA is looking at this and I think it's going to go with full course. But past the incident, you involved the citizenry. It wasn't just about have you seen the video and passing it and getting in on this. You engaged Brooklynites again where we live and said, hey. Let's meet here. Let's talk about this. So what of that approach do you think as a way forward with all of these incidents that we've been seeing popping up in the news across the country? And that's so true, which which you stated, because as I said so often, uh, the biggest error we make in communication is that we, we mistakenly believe it actually took place. Yeah. We have lost the ability to communicate with each other. And by going to the area where this this took place and allow people to talk, allow people to engage. And some people say, well, you know, we've talked enough. No, you never talk enough. We've talked at each other with our thoughts. Exactly. You you know, we walk down the block and we text each other while we're standing standing side by side. And I just don't believe that. And there were a number of people of color who were there who was talking. Some things I agree with, some things I disagree with, Mm -hmm. which is fine. And then there were a number of whites who were there. And some folks of color was criticizing 
that, you know, we don't want any whites in the community. We're here together, right. and we better get used to it. Yeah. The borough is not going to all of a sudden be de-blacked or de-white or de-Russian. Right. Listen, this is a diverse borough. One Brooklyn. One Brooklyn, accepted or not. It is going to continue to evolve. We can't force people out, mm -hmm. but we have to continue to talk to each other. And there was a white woman who was there yeah. who was strongly defending the young black child. When others were silent, she was extremely vociferous. And that is what we want. I want good neighbors, yeah. not based on ethnicity, but based on their actions. She can stay. No, everyone can stay. So in our last two minutes, we're coming up on the sixth anniversary of Sandy. And we know that there was a meeting yesterday about resiliency and what we need to do moving forward. I just wanted to know if there was anything we should be looking forward to or forums or talking or action to protect uh, folks in coastal Brooklyn. It's so true. And we are a coastal city. Yeah. Living on the coast, the reality is the storms that are hidden, impacting our city are becoming stronger mm -hmm. and more uh, impactful. We have to redefine our thinking. And let me share something with you. M mm -hmm. Many people talk about my vegan transformation due to health reasons, yeah. but do you know the number one cause of the hole in our ozone layer is due to waste from animals? All those farting cows. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so if we do not start looking at the decrease in our meat consumption mm -hmm. and our over addiction to meat, yeah. then we're talking out of both sides of our mouths. And the reality is it's not about only the carbon emissions. It's not about cars off the road. It's not about in, yeah. in buildings heating. Those are smaller numbers to the number of the holding our layers coming from the over meat consumption, we can do more in this city to slow that down. It's a holistic view of looking at the whole thing. Yes. yes. Plant-based diet here. <laughs> so as you are looking forward, that sounds like taking on the agro business and these factory farms. There's not a lot of factory farming in Brooklyn when it comes to uh, animals. We got a few rooftop things, but mm -hmm. as a New York City's mayor, you would have a very large bully pulpit to do that. So much we could do, and I think there's so much the, the mayor has done, and I think there's more that we could do in the future. We have to stop being afraid to mm -hmm. really confront these issues head on. We are proud to announce that Bellevue Hospital, the oldest hospital in America, is about to open in November. The first plant-based unit in the hospital, a person comes in for diabetes, heart disease, other diseases. Instead of talking about living with it for life, yeah. there's going to be a place where they can reverse their conditions in some cases where you're going to have a doctor, a nutritionist, a chef, where people are going to learn the power of food. This is unprecedented. And, you know, kudos to the mayor after speaking with my office, moving forward with the initiative and yeah. some of the other things we're doing around healthy eating. We can live a more quality life if we change what we're eating. The pharmacy doesn't spell P-H-A-R-M-A-C-Y, it's F-A-R-M-A-C-Y. Okay. Every time you walk in that, that grocery store, yeah. you're gonna make a determination of healing yourself or killing yourself based on what you consume. All right, all right. Bellevue first, the school's next. <laughs> yes, so true, so Brooklyn true. Borough President Eric Adams, thanks for joining us. Today. Thank you, always good seeing you. Now some news. The other day, Brooklyn Community Board 2 approved a second proposal to rename the corner of Fulton Street and St. James Place 
Christopher Wallace Way to honor the late rapper Biggie Smalls. Biggie is considered one of the most influential rappers of all time, but naming the street after him has been controversial, given his criminal past and misogynist lyrics. The full community board will vote on the proposal at 6 p.m. Wednesday, November 14th at the Ingersoll Community Center Gym. And if you don't know, now you know. Bed-Stuy local Okwi Okpakwasili has been named a MacArthur Genius Fellow for her work in performance and choreography. The prestigious fellowship goes to candidates who show originality and dedication in their work. And last year, journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times Magazine, another Brooklynite, was part of the cohort of recipients. Each of the 25 MacArthur geniuses selected this year will receive $625,000 over the next five years. According to Borough President Eric Adams, some visitors to the Brooklyn County Courthouse have been stashing their guns at nearby construction sites while they attend court appearances. In explaining a recent spate of daytime shootings in the area, Adams said these men are carrying guns to court and parole dates in case they run into rivals. Adams says cops and court officials are now trying to do a better job to coordinate the dates of problem defendants so as to not have a concentration of people with corresponding beefs. A developer and operator of co-living properties, the Collective, is planning to construct a large-scale co-living community on the border of Williamsburg and Bushwick. The co-living model is being touted as a dormitory-style accommodation for young professionals and is trying to answer the question no one is asking, is luxury co-living a solution to loneliness in big cities? Located at 555 Broadway, the $450 million, 350,000-square-foot development will be the collective's flagship U.S. location and the first of its kind in New York City. One giant step past gentrification. The collective's new monster development would include an art gallery, performance and rehearsal spaces, chef's kitchens, artisanal retail, and event spaces for the collective curated classes, workshops, talks, and seminars. Cool, if that's your thing, I guess. That's the show for today. Tomorrow, Ashley will be right back here exploring some big questions about life and about death with Shayna Feinberg. You might know her from her work as director here on Brick TV's latest scripted series, Dinette. She's participating in the Reimagined End of Life Week next week in the city. We'll see you soon. One One Two BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It is also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Kritzi Roberts, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. And it is edited by Mira Al-Rahim. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.